in an experiment. Yeah, we didn't know yet. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speak. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to The Nature Podcast. This week, we've got an adolescent special. We'll be defining adolescence and taking a look at the science of teen risk-taking. Plus, getting high school students to do university-level research. This is The Nature Podcast for the 22nd of February, 2018. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. So, listeners, this special episode of The Nature Podcast is just part of a wider collection of news features, comment pieces and research articles published across the Nature family of journals and in Scientific American. Find the whole collection at nature.com forward slash collections forward slash adolescence. With that in mind, it's probably quite important to work out what the word adolescence actually means. Does it just refer to somebody's age? Or is it more of a developmental thing? I reached out to Ron Dahl, director of the Institute of Human Development at the University of California, Berkeley, to see if adolescence is something that we can agree on the definition of. One of the things that I find most interesting about trying to even define conceptually, let alone definitionally, what adolescence is, is you can't do it with any one discipline. Because the onset of adolescence, where the end of childhood is a biological event, the beginning of puberty, However, the end of adolescence is a social construct. It's having the rights and responsibilities of an adult. Just because you finish growing or become sexually mature or have a certain amount of myelination in your brain does not make you an adult. What draws in, uh, I think, another level of curiosity and interest is that that transitional phase between childhood and adulthood has changed. It's changed across various historical scales Certainly different species or different ancestors of humans had uh, shorter periods, but it's also changing in recent history. Puberty has been happening earlier, and taking on the full roles and responsibilities and rights of an adult has in many ways become a, a delayed process and is highly variable. And so even as a developmental phase, that it's, there's been a dynamic set of changes across this window of time. Ron told me that the end of adolescence is really difficult to categorise. When someone is in their late teens or early 20s, are they an adolescent or are they an adult? If you get together a group of scientists or a group of psychologists or a group of policymakers and say, how do we define adolescence? You have a great deal of difficulty coming up with any simple answers. If you define them conceptually, the scientists are happy that they're clearly defined concepts. And the policymaker would say, yeah, but we can't pass laws based on those, those concepts. We need an age. Give us something we can measure and, and enforce the laws around. And therein lies the difficulty, because these are not easily translated into a simple age when we should regard everyone as an adult. So what needs to be done? Will we ever be able to define adolescence? Rather than assume adolescence is some homogeneous period of time or group of individuals, we need to recognize that young people who are beginning to change when they're 10 or 11, young people who are in the middle of adolescence as teenagers, young people who are at near the end of adolescence beginning to transition into adulthood, if we use some term that implies those are all the same, we are misunderstanding this period of development. I think that when we try to define this period for scientific study, 
we're better to think about these developmental processes and how they change across this time rather than use a term that implies that you know, they're all the same. Just like we wouldn't regard all children as children, whether they're infants or toddlers or preschoolers, we should really be thinking in a more sophisticated way about development if we really want to use that developmental science to inform practical issues and social policies that we're facing. Rondal there, who is a co-author on A Perspective on Adolescence, which you can find over at nature.com slash nature. Now, it's clearly tricky to pin down what adolescence actually is, but there are still plenty of ideas of what adolescents themselves are like. Next up, reporter Kerry Smith explores a particularly risky stereotype with the help of neuroscientists and adolescents themselves. When I say the word teenager, what pops into your head? Emotional and impulsive and selfish and... Rebellious, risk-taking. There's almost never anything positive associated with kind of the adolescent period. This voice belongs to Eva Telzer. She's a neuroscientist at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, where she teaches undergraduates about the teenage brain. And those are the words those students choose when she asks them to describe adolescence on day one of the class. So, are they right? Take risk, for example. Do teens throw themselves off cliffs or into bed with each other, never thinking of the consequences or stopping to consider others? Here's Adriana Galvan who studies the teenage brain at the University of California, Los Angeles. Teenagers show an uptick in risk-taking. They are less concerned about the consequences of risk-taking. They act more in the moment than children or adults. Uh, and in general, they just take more risks. OK, so they do seem to take more risks. And that's one reason that neuroscientists have been so interested in risk. Teens are 35% more likely to die than children, and many of the causes are things like road injury or self-harm. There are changes in the teenage brain that could be mediating this too. One that is most relevant to increased risk-taking is that their reward centre is more excitable. The second thing that's changing is that their prefrontal cortex is undergoing massive development. The prefrontal cortex is the brain's cognitive control centre, the seat of rational decision-making. Together, the peak in reward sensitivity and the fact that the prefrontal cortex is playing catch-up led researchers to think a certain way about teenagers. For a long time, we really had a deficit model of adolescence. You know, what's wrong with adolescence and what's wrong with all the risks that they take? But the opinion among researchers is shifting. The risk-taking is serving as a learning opportunity for teens. Like all of us, we learn through trial and error often. And during the teenage years, that trial and error might involve taking risks in order to learn about the environment and to learn about one's own limits. Risk-taking in teens isn't ubiquitous either. Not all teens are daredevils. I wouldn't say I make many impulsive decisions. This is Lucy Redford, who's 15 and at a school in Oxfordshire in the UK. So I did a rock climbing course, indoor rock climbing course recently, and there was like a certain amount of danger involved with that, but... I figured I would I would get a qualification out of it, so that was a benefit. And the likelihood of a, something bad happening was very low. So I took the risk, and it was very good fun. Definitely a calculated risk-taker. A study from 2013 showed that teens do calculate risks in much the same way as adults, when the risks are known. It's when the outcome is fuzzier that teens are more likely to just go for it. 
My mum specifically said, don't break anything, don't injure yourself because we're going on holiday. Lucy's classmate Theo Barron describing a visit to try indoor snowboarding. They've got this not huge jump, but a decently sized jump. And I wasn't at the point where I should be taking jumps, but out of instinct, I just went over it anyway. Um, and I fell over. Uh, and it was sort of that moment where you think you've hurt yourself. So I was really nervous then. I was like, what have I done? And also the fact that you probably shouldn't have done it in the first place, but you still did. But physical risk-taking is only one type of risk, and researchers have realised there are more than that that they need to think about. Social risks, for instance. These are the big ones for many teenagers. Here are Theo and his friend Will Sperrin telling me about the one day at school each year that's a guaranteed cyclone of risk-taking and risk-avoidance. Non-uniform day. People are still like, more wary about their appearance and things like that. So like non-school uniform days, people are always trying to like, impress people with what they wear and... Well, that sort of stuff. What but was then, the last one of those like? Oh, hectic. Yeah. I, think I sort of just put some stuff I had on, but there, there was obviously people putting on like clothes that they prepared the week before. To many people in Theo and Will's class, the right amount of risk and the associated reward is key at a time like this. Neuroscientists have known for a while that teens tend to take more risks if they're around their friends. But peer influence doesn't always have to be bad. Eva Telzer has noticed yet another dimension. Adolescents might take risks that the primary kind of reason for the decision is not necessarily to benefit themselves or get a thrill or whatnot, but really focused on a positive outcome for somebody else. You might be sacrificing something like your peer status or risking getting bullied yourself to do something that benefits somebody else. Her key question is, When a teen takes a risk to help someone, does the brain process it differently from a risk they take to please themselves? Not according to Telza. Teenagers making these decisions show activation in the same brain region as those taking risks that benefit themselves. This is an area responsible for processing information about reward, called the ventral striatum. So I think it's helping us to kind of reframe what risk-taking is in teenagers. It's not these kind of selfish adolescent decisions where they're only thinking about themselves. At the other end of the scale, there might be a cluster of risk-prone teens taking more dangerous risks than the average. But most research is done on a general population of teens, and researchers have just assumed that riskier teens are like that, but more so. That may be a false assumption. There's fewer people who have looked at these kind of higher-risk populations, and it's, and it's quite surprising because it is kind of the focus of so much attention is adolescent risk-taking and um, all of the really negative behaviours that are occurring. The idea isn't necessarily to reduce risk-taking among teenagers, because for many teens it's a useful way of figuring themselves out before adulthood. Teens themselves acknowledge this. Here's 18-year-old David Kennedy from North East London, reflecting on how his younger self would have dealt with conflict. It comes with age a bit, but yeah, I was, it was more about what other people wanted. And now it's a, a little bit more about what I want. It was definitely like, you think things through a little more when you're older, compared to when you're younger, it's a bit more impulse. There's one more reason, Telza thinks, to reframe risk-taking, and teenagers in general. She and her colleagues have found that negative perceptions can become self-fulfilling prophecies. They asked middle schoolers about their conceptions of adolescence and then scanned their brains and again in high school. Teens who thought the standard teen misbehaves at school or is rude to their family was more likely to take risks in lab tests, accompanied by changes in brain activity. If 
everyone believes that this is how adolescents are, the research kind of shows that that becomes true. That was Eva Telzer there, talking to Kerry Smith. You also heard from Adriana Galvan, and special thanks go to Farringdon Community College, Oxfordshire, and City and Islington College, London. You can read Kerry's feature over at nature.com news, and for a short documentary exploring this risky business, head over to our YouTube channel, which you can find at youtube.com slash naturevideochannel. Coming up, we'll be finding out about that amateur astronomer who stumbled upon a supernova. That's in the news chat. But before that, it's the final segment in our adolescence special. Noah Baker has been investigating a slightly unusual research group. There was a sort of a bit of a race who would get there first. Of course, NASA then got these same chips on the International Space Station. This is Becky Parker. She's a visiting professor at Queen Mary University of London, and she's talking about her students' race with NASA to get some redesigned CERN technology up into space. Actually, we managed to fly this technology in open space first. We're now about to get publishable work out of that. The experiment in question was designed by her students and monitors cosmic rays. It utilised some CERN technology called Medipix chips. Putting any experiment into orbit is a significant achievement for a research group. The thing which makes Becky's group stand out, though, is that her students were in high school when they designed it. You probably uh, think it's... uh, I'm making this up, but I'm certainly not, that actually this was students saying, why don't we use that technology from CERN in space? You see, although she does hold a professorship at university, first and foremost, Becky is a high school science teacher. In fact, she was one of my teachers when I was at school. What a joy that was, Noah. Since teaching me, however, Becky has moved on to much bigger things. And now she's the director of the Institute for Research in Schools. The Institute for Research in Schools, or IRIS for short, is a small charity with the goal of helping young people and teachers contribute to novel research. We feel passionately that there's huge potential in young people and that they can engage more with what science is really about if they are part of that community. Becky was only just starting with her various initiatives when I was at school and I didn't really get involved at the time. So I spoke to someone who did. Uh, my name is Pete Hatfield. I work at the Clarendon Laboratory in the University of Oxford. My first kind of experience doing research science, I was very lucky to be involved in several very interesting projects when I was in sixth form. Sixth form is a name given to the last two years of high school in the UK, between the ages of 16 and 18. Which I eventually ended up bit, uh, submitting to a peer-reviewed journal and getting published whilst I was in sixth form. Peter thinks that his experience of being a teenage researcher helped him on his journey to university and beyond. I think it was probably less, though, that they kind of looked at my personal segment and saw, oh, he's done these projects, that looks great. It was probably more that doing those projects gave me the confidence and kind of reasoning skills that I kind of seemed like a good candidate in interviews and so on. So I think it's probably more the skills I gained rather than just the fact that I'd done them. Becky formed her charity, Iris, to try to provide this kind of opportunity to all students. The vision of Iris is that Science education is about doing science in the same way that a music education would be about playing an instrument and being involved in the real process of music, not just learning about stuff which has gone before. But is it as simple as that? Um, I think it's sensible. I think it depends on the context. That's Terry McGlynn, a biologist at Cal State Dominguez Hill. In 2013, he published an article on his blog entitled Why I Don't Take High School Students Into My Lab. 
in the U.S., it's a very class-based phenomenon. So usually in the U.S., the opportunities to be able to work in a university laboratory for a high school student are provided to students who are um, wealthier. Now, that's not to suggest that Terry thinks there's anything about teenagers which means they're not capable of doing research. Well, that just sounds fundamentally silly to me. Um, I think there's a lot of 40-year-old men who are PIs of labs who don't have the characteristics that are required to do original research. So what is it that's missing from a 16-year-old that, you know, I don't, I don't even see where that would come from. But nonetheless, he feels that he has an obligation to his undergraduates first and foremost. My university's role in the community is to serve the underserved. Um, and so actually our university was moved to its current location because the community of South L.A. didn't have a university. And so if there's like, you know, a rich kid from a prep school in the rich part of town who wants to be in my lab so he could like go to Harvard for undergraduate, well, that, that, that goes against the interests of my own undergraduates. It's important to note here that the model that Terry is talking about, of taking individual high school students into a lab to give them work experience, is not the same as projects which aim to engage teenagers more widely with novel research. Terry's feelings towards that kind of work were actually quite different. If there's a scheme, you know, especially if it's funded, where, you know, uh, we could work with uh, multiple teachers, design projects so that we can have, you know, whole high school classes involved in original research, I think that's awesome. But Terry's concerns are still important to consider. Is this concept of novel research in schools something which can really be accessible for all students? Research can be expensive. Grants don't necessarily cover collaborations with teenagers. Will this not just become a project for the economic elite? Becky doesn't think so. No, I think that's actually where Iris comes in. Sometimes, you know, if you're doing an in-depth project with the university, that might cost a lot. One of the things we have been absolutely determined to do is make scalable projects. I think the key thing here is Iris is not about creating new projects which are suitable for young people. It's about seeing where young people can contribute. And in those cases, we're not adding to grants. We're actually trying to help the research institutes and the universities by having another wing, sort of having another arm to their operations. Becky is adamant that these programmes aren't just for the intellectual elite either. So we're not just talking about stretching those high flyers. We're talking about empowering students of all abilities to realise that they have something to contribute. There have been about 10 papers published linked to Iris-led research, and there are more in the pipeline. Iris has more than 500 schools signed up to their model, and they're collecting data on its efficacy. So far, they're seeing significant increases in academic achievement correlated with research projects, as well as an increase in the number of students continuing to study science, technology, engineering or maths at university. But Iris is only two years old, and time will tell how successful it or other initiatives like it will be in the longer term. I wonder, will you be collaborating with teenagers anytime soon? That was a report by Noah Baker. It featured Becky Parker from Iris, Peter Hatfield from the University of Oxford, and Terry McGlynn of California State University, Dominguez Hills. If you want to read more about bringing high school students into the research environment, check out the careers piece in Nature's Adolescent Special. You can find the whole collection at nature.com slash collections slash adolescence. Time now for the news chat, and I'm joined in the studio by physical sciences reporter Davide Castelvecchi. Hi, Davide. 
Hello, Adam. Now, first up, researchers have been looking for a way to transport antimatter. Before we get to why they want to transport it about, can you explain why this is such a difficult thing to do? Well, it's probably something a lot of our listeners know from science fiction. Antimatter just vanishes in a puff of energy when it bumps into ordinary matter. And so you can imagine that you can't just hold it in a regular box because regular box is made of regular matter. So what do you have to do instead if you can't hold it in a box? Uh, techniques for holding things in electromagnetic fields. The tricky thing is that for antimatter, you have to keep it not only in a vacuum in an electromagnetic field, but also the vacuum has to be exquisitely pure. Uh, you can imagine you know, any like stray atom of anything would destroy the, the antimatter in it. So why are researchers looking to go to all this trouble to transport antimatter around? Why can't they just keep it where they've got it? Well, first of all, there's not many places where you can create antimatter. And CERN, the particle physics lab uh, near Geneva, has one of the few sources that can make a substantial amount of antimatter. But then again, there are a lot of experiments where you can potentially want to use it. And in this particular case, there's an experiment up, up the road uh, on the CERN campus where they're going to ship it to. And what's this experiment actually hoping to use this antimatter for? This is a very interesting experiment because it could shed some light into the structure of neutron stars. Neutron stars are the densest form of matter uh, known in the universe. And what they're going to do is they're going to basically make the antiprotons collide with very rare isotopes and see what happens. And, and the interactions inside these isotopes' nuclei, uh, they hope, you know, because they're similar to what might happen inside the neutron star, they could, they could tell us something about the structure of the neutron star. So how many antiprotons are they actually planning on shipping across to do these experiments with these nuclei? Uh, so this bottle, they're hoping that it will be able to hold about a billion antiproton at a time, which it's not a macroscopic amount of matter by any means, but it's a lot more than has ever been done before. Now, why can't they just, instead of shipping this really precarious antimatter over to the radioactive nuclei, just ship the nuclei over to the antimatter? Ah, because they're going to be doing this experiment with extremely rare, extremely short-lived isotopes. And those decay within a fraction of a second, so you wouldn't even have the time to put those in a bottle and take them to the antimatter factory. Well, it sounds like an experiment that is going to take a lot of care to get right, which is in a way quite different to our second story, which uh, took a lot of fluke to get right. An amateur astronomer has made... Quite an amazing discovery. Uh, what did he actually capture? So this man named Victor Busso in La Plata, Argentina, on the 20th of September of 2016, he was testing a new camera for his uh, telescope. And so he took repeated pictures of the same galaxy over a period of hours. And he saw at the beginning of, of his uh, night of observation the galaxy just looked like its normal, usual self. And by the end, there had been a supernova explosion. So in these pictures that he took every few minutes, he actually saw the supernova break out. 
something that had never been observed before. But haven't supernovas been captured before in comparison to previous images? Absolutely. It happens all the time. Uh, people take a picture of a galaxy, they see this very bright dot, and they then compare it to uh, archival images, and they say that dot wasn't there before, this is a supernova, and then they, you know, sometimes they keep observing it for weeks at a time. But the actual process of going from a star to the supernova, you know, and, and the star becoming rapidly brighter had never been seen before. Just how big a fluke is this? How often would you expect a supernova to pop into existence in a galaxy like this? Yeah, you, you have to imagine this is a spiral galaxy just like the Milky Way, and it's thought that maybe there's a supernova happening in an average galaxy maybe once per century. So you have to imagine if you if you take a picture, if you look at a, 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 a random galaxy at a random time, the odds that you'll see a supernova happening while you're looking at it are very low. One astronomer I interviewed said that it's it's like hitting the jackpot in a lottery. Now, obviously, it must be wonderful for this amateur astronomer to have discovered this, but are there research implications to now having an observation of a supernova exploding live, I guess. This is unclear. I mean, it, it seems that what happened was uh, more or less what people expected from theory and from, from previous models. But there haven't been uh, very detailed computer simulations uh, made so far to compare uh, with, the, with the data. So it may need some more work to actually find out if there's a lot we can learn from this. Are there other examples where we've spotted something for the first time in the cosmos pretty much by chance like this? Astronomy actually is a science that has a lot of serendipity. One famous example was in 1967, the discovery of the first pulsar, this mysterious radio signal that was flashing once every 1.33 seconds. And the researchers who made the discovery, they were not looking for it. They didn't know this thing could exist. They were just looking at that part of the sky for other reasons. There's another famous example that's uh, more recent in history. NASA's Cassini probe around Jupiter uh, was doing a flyby of the moon Enceladus. And just as it was flying by the moon, it got hit by a plume of ice particles. There was an eruption from the surface of the moon. And this was not entirely unexpected, but the fact that it happened just as the probe was flying by and it got hit by the particles themselves, it didn't just observe them from afar, that was quite unexpected. Thank you, Davide. For more on the latest science news, head over to nature.com forward slash news. And for more on serendipity in science, keep an ear out for this month's back chat. The roundtable discussion will be landing in your podcast inboxes very soon. That's it for this week's show. Don't forget to follow the podcast on Twitter at Nature Podcast or send us an email podcast at nature.com. And don't forget to go and check out Nature Video's short film about risk during adolescence. You'll find it along with all our other science videos over youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening. 